0: The most important thing isn't that I turn my this microphone on for the service, it's that I turn it off for the singing. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't carry a tune if you put handles on it. <laughs> Mike is out of town, uh, stuck with me this morning, which is okay, uh, and because uh, we're covering a great topic this morning. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit uh, in a series that Mike started called The Uncontrollable Sin, which is coveting. And some might wonder, well, you know, this is a New Testament, New Covenant church, a grace-based ministry. Why are we not only banging around in the Old Testament, but now we're landing on the Ten Commandments? Fair question. And I love how Mike addressed this a week or two ago, so I'll just quote Mike. He said, this teaching series is not about keeping the Ten Commandments, but rather about figuring out how the New Covenant and the Holy Spirit deal with these things in a graceful way. And I really appreciate that because like all the topics that we try to do here at Hope, it has a lot of direct correlation to our everyday lives. It has a lot to do with our everyday walk and certainly this topic of coveting has to do with so many decisions we make on a daily basis. So it's very apropos. Uh, There's a couple of places in the Old Testament where it lays out the commandments and When it lays out this particular one addressing coveting, I actually prefer the version in Deuteronomy. They changed a couple of words. And what this says is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The other version of this in Exodus, it just says you'll not covet your neighbor's house and then not covet your neighbor's wife. But here it changes it a little to not set your desire upon these things. And I like that because coveting has to do with desire. Mike has compared this to a hunger or a a longing for something. And When I read this commandment, one of the first things that struck me in studying this is if you look at some of the other Ten Commandments, they're very black and white. For instance, the Bible says, do not steal. Boom. Do not commit adultery. Boom. Do not murder. Boom. So it leads the question, why doesn't this commandment simply say just do not covet? Boom. And it doesn't say that, does it? Now, it doesn't qualify these other commandments. For instance, it doesn't say, do not steal from these people or do not steal this particular stuff, does it? When it addresses adultery, it doesn't say, do not commit adultery with this type of person or do not commit adultery in these situations. It's black and white. The same with murder. And by the way, a lot of Bibles, they translate the commandment into thou shalt not kill please go home or if you got your Bible with you, scratch a line through the word kill and write murder. That's a better translation. The Bible actually does not mean thou shall not kill. There are situations uh, in war and crime fighting. There's situations where killing was actually commanded by God. But what the commandment said was do not murder. And here again, it doesn't say don't murder these particular people or don't murder under these circumstances. So again, it leads the question, why doesn't this just come out and say, do not covet? And the answer to that is because coveting in and of itself is not a sin. Mike is quick to point out that coveting is neither a positive or a negative thing. It simply is a human desire a longing for something. And Mike has defined coveting in some different ways, but one of my favorites is when he said, coveting can be defined as not just a hunger, but a fearful hunger. One of the best ways of understanding the difference is if we think about the process of going shopping. Something we all do, and you're pushing a cart through a store and grabbing things that you need or grabbing things that you want, but think about the other process of panic buying. Anybody relate to that these days? <laughs> panic buying it's funny how a, there's an item I won't pay fifty dollars for when I can find it, and now I 'll pay a hundred dollars just because it's out of going away. <laughs> that mentality of panic buying fearful desire fearful hunger i mean it's kind of crazy between prices going up every week and between stocks going away and supplies going away it's very easy to relate to this this fearful uh i got to have it i got to have it now it, a lot of this started uh Months ago, where instead of buying one thing, I think, well, maybe I should get an extra. Give me security. And now I actually find myself thinking, I'd better grab a lifetime supply of everything I need, which at my age isn't that much. <laughs> you know, every time I buy one of them big bottles of shampoo, I actually think, this is probably the last one of these I'll ever need to buy. So, but that's how we think. We get into that panic mode. And that is how coveting feels to us. It's not just a desire for something, but there's a frantic element to it. And, the, but coveting in and of itself is not considered a sin, interestingly. The sin truly lies in how we satisfy this hunger. And that's the problem. In 12-step recovery, they have a 10th step that says we continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admit it. And at first I thought, well, that's gonna be an easy step to take because I pride myself in never being wrong. (laughs) I'm a perfectionist. The worst I ever did is sometimes I'm mistaken due to being misinformed. <laughs> but that's a little different, right? But if conceivably hypothetically I was wrong about something, sure, I'll I'll admit it. You know, it it I said it was raining out and it was only drizzling. <laughs> but that's not really what that's about at all. You see, when I really started to understand what they were getting at, I finally realized that all my life I've been wrong about two simple things, my problems and my solutions. All my life I've been deceived, I've been mistaken, about diagnosing what's really wrong with me and what's really wrong with my life and what my problems are. Because instead of fixing problems, I would just fix blame. I just wanted to know who is responsible for me being miserable or not getting what I wanted. So I would think my problem is them. It's you, it's him, it's her. It's my job. My problem is is you know, all of these other things. And then eventually I started to understand that my real enemies in this world are not people. They're things called defects of character. See, my real problems are internal, not external. Pride, selfishness, self-centeredness, deception, fear. Uh, These are the things that drive my decision-making, that drive me to make bad decisions that put me in positions to be hurt. So, and... The other thing that I learned is not only do I have horrible problems, I have even worse solutions. (laughs) Because when I go about fixing things, because of deception, I often not only address wrong problems, but I fix them in the wrong ways. I'm like a kid eating a hot dog and he spills mustard on his white shirt and then he starts going about cleaning it up. And before you know it, he's the mustard man. See, that kid wasn't trying to make a mess, he was trying to clean one up. But because of the way he went about it, he made it worse instead of better. And that, unfortunately, is kind of the story of my life, because I've often went the wrong direction in addressing these problems. And that's what we're going to get into about how we address things like coveting, is It's a bad problem, but often opens the door to even worse solutions. And what that leads us to is an understanding that I believe the great lie of coveting is this underlying belief that life is a zero-sum game, that there's not enough for everybody. There's not enough to go around. So I buy this initial lie that life is a zero-sum game. And what that means is basically that in order for me to have something, you have to lose something. In order for me to get what I want, somebody else has to give it up. Somebody else has to be deprived. Imagine this example. Uh, You're sitting in a restaurant looking at a menu, and the server comes out to take your order. And about that time, you look over, and another server is delivering food to the table next to you. And it looks really good. And You're going, wow, I didn't even see that on the menu. So you ask your server, what is that? And she describes it, and now you really want it. You're going, wow, that looks really good. So you you tell the server, I believe I'll have what that lady is having. So the server goes, okay, so she walks over to the next table, takes the plate of food away (laughs) from the person they just served it to and sets it down in front of you. (laughs) That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? (laughs) You see, in saying I'll have what they're having, in that situation, you fully understand there's plenty to go around. They can eat it, but they're going to go back in the kitchen and make more and bring it to me too. There's no coveting involved in that. But coveting is the belief that there isn't enough to go around. And it boils down to how we fill in the blanks. It's not just that I need a certain thing, but I need that thing. That is the only thing on the planet that's going to satisfy me. So it's not just that I need a house, I need their house. It's not just that I need a job, I need their job. It's not just that I need a car, I need their car. And unfortunately, since it's already theirs, the only way I can have it is to take it away from them. Uh, Not just I need a spouse, I need their spouse. And this is where our solutions for coveting start to go off the rails. So one of the things that I learned in life is that we have all these fears and just like coveting is really rooted in fear, a fearful desire. All of our fears can really be summed up in two fears. Fear of either losing something we have or not getting something we want. And you might be thinking, oh, is it really that simple? I had to chew that before I swallowed it, but it really does make sense. Two fears. Fear of losing what we have, or not getting what we want. And with that I believe being true, and understanding the nature of our fears, then it also, that helps us to understand a couple of kissing cousins to coveting, which are jealousy and envy. There's a lot of different definitions for jealousy and envy, but those are two of the initial fruits of covetousness. And even though there's different definitions, the understanding I like when it comes to jealousy What that really is about, it starts with fear. I'm jealous because I'm afraid of losing something I have. In that case, usually it's associated with losing a relationship. Somebody is going to take this girlfriend or this wife away from me, that fear that maybe somebody else out there is better than me, or that my girlfriend or spouse might like them more than me, or maybe they have more to offer than me. So it starts with that fear that I'm going to lose them, and then that fear, as it often does, opens the door for anger and resentment. Because now I'm seeing everybody else as a threat. And I'm starting to look at them sideways, like they're going to take away something I have, and I'm going to lose it. So now I'm angry. A similar feeling that we have is with envy. And envy, I believe, is also rooted in fear, fear of not getting what we want. So in that case, I don't have it. But the problem with envy isn't just that I lack something, that I don't have it. It starts to give way to anger because I realize I don't have it, but you do. Oh, that's not fair. How come you get to have Her and I don't. How come you get to have that house and I don't? How come you get to drive that kind of car and I don't? So now I'm looking at you sideways and now I'm angry with you simply because you have what I can't have. And sometimes that will then open the door to coveting where I start to plot and scheme. How can I get that thing you have? How can I take it away from you so I can have it? So again, jealousy and envy are a couple of first fruits, if you will, of covetousness and that opens the door to even worse things. So it leads the question, what do we do with these hungers? What do we do with these passions, these desires that we have welling up in us? They're not sins, they're not wrong, they're perfectly human. but. Generally, what we do with these things, there's three things, three different ways that we try to satisfy these desires. The first thing we try to do as humans is we try to satisfy them. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) I mean, we can try, but the world doesn't really work that way, does it? And you see, one of the reasons why satisfying our desires becomes so frustrating for us is because there is a huge difference between meeting our needs versus fulfilling our wants. See, if we we narrow life down to 24-hour increments one day at a time, I'll bet every person in this room and everybody at home has enough to make it until midnight, right? You got enough gas in your tank, you got enough money in your pocket, you got enough food in your refrigerator. I don't think any of us are worried about making it until midnight. But a lot of these fears is that we're not gonna have what we need in the future. But you see, God promises to meet our needs sometimes in spectacular ways, sometimes just by equipping us to get what we need to make it through the day. Give us this day our daily bread. But when it comes to our wants, on the other hand, that's a whole other animal, isn't it? Because our wants are rooted in our egos. See, I want a shelter, but I... I need shelter, but I want that house on the hill. I need clothes, but I want those designer fashions. I need food, but I want that eight course meal. I need something that I already probably have, but I want something better. And you see, when we start trying to fulfill our wants, not only are those wants insatiable, because the more you get, the more you want, don't you? See, and I can't tell you how many times that I've seen people that, that thought, if I can just get this, then I'll, I'll be okay, right? Because one of the interesting questions that we could ask this morning, if we went around here and just asked everybody, what do you want? If you could have anything, a genie popping out of a magic lamp, if you could just brainstorm, what do you want? See, we want all kinds of stuff, don't we? Don't we? I want a million dollars. I want that degree. I want that job. I want to live in this neighborhood. I want to drive that vehicle. I want him. I want her. Six months later, what do you want? I just want to get rid of him. I just want to get rid of her. (laughs) But then we ask a better question. What do you really want? And I believe we'd always get the same answer, wouldn't we? What do we really want? Peace. Peace. We just want to be happy. We just want to be content. We want to get to a place where we can go (sighs) and just be secure, just be happy. And you see, this is where we often fail to keep our eye on the ball because we confuse the end with the means. And we think we can't be happy. We can't have peace until we get all these other things. And so we clamor for all these things that we want and these things were not designed to satisfy because we're shopping in the wrong place we're shopping at the for the things of this world and not shopping in the only place that provides true lasting everlasting peace because if the real goal isn't to get stuff why do i want a million dollars cuz then i can have what i really want ah peace i don't have to worry about bad bosses and bills and all that other stuff? Why do I want her? Because then I can be happy. Why do I want to get rid of her? Because then I'll have peace. (laughs) But you see, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, if that's what he's offering, then maybe if we could have peace, we don't need all of this other stuff. You see how that works? And that's why we have to focus, first of all, more on meeting our needs and being happy with that. And what if we, and you see the problem here is either we satisfy them or don't, but either way it doesn't work, does it? Because if we don't get what we want, we start resenting people and even resenting God for not giving us what we want. So it leads to anger. It leads to division and separation. We start looking at God sideways. We look at each other sideways. But even worse is when we do get what we want, because if we're fulfilling our desires, enough is never enough. I can't tell you how many people I've met that have become wealthy, but they're, in their head they thought, if I can just get X amount of dollars in the bank, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to retire, see the world, travel, relax, take it easy. But as soon as they reach that amount of money, their head kicks in and goes, wow, if I could get this, maybe I could get that. And then if I can get that, maybe I can get that. And it doesn't. they can't starve it, they feed it, and it gets bigger and meaner. And it gets worse, the hunger grows, it doesn't shrink. And it doesn't address the fear problem either. Because if you don't have money, you think, wow, if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't have to worry about money. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that too. I know a lot of people with money that worry more about money because now they're worried about losing it everybody's got their hand in their pocket. The government wants their cut and thieves and robbers are trying to steal it. People are trying to sue them all the time for it. They're they're afraid of losing it through bad investments. So the joke is there is no security in this world. What we need to focus on is eternal security and that's what we're going to get to. The second option is to silence them. So we think, okay, I have these desires, I'm just going to deny them, I'm going to suppress them, I'm going to medicate them. You know, we have that picture of a lonely heart, you know, some guy, broken heart, sitting in a country western bar, plugging quarters into the jukebox, playing every sad song, you know, drowning his sorrows, and sometimes we do that. You know, instead of working on himself, self-improvement, finding another another mate, he's just going to drown his sorrows. Um, so we can medicate him, but sometimes we can even use religion to medicate ourselves, can't we? False religion. Because misery loves company. So sometimes people that try to silence their desires, they're sitting there going, well... My belief system does not allow me to have any fun. And so they go find a church, and they look around, and they go, well, it doesn't look like anybody else in this church is having any fun either. I think I'll join this one. <laughs> Conversely, they'll go into a church and everybody's joking and laughing and I must shake the dust off my feet for these are apostates. (laughs) They're doing it wrong. Or they go to another church and everybody's playing music and dancing. Oh, more apostasy. I must shake the dust off my feet here too. So they're going to gravitate towards people miserable like them. A bunch of a whole room full of people suppressing these desires, and the problem is they turn suffering and martyrdom into virtues. and I can relate to that uh, for example, at one time, I kind of prided myself on my sexual purity, and then finally, I had to get honest and realize that it wasn't a virtue, it was just unpopularity <laughs> I mean, I probably would have succumbed if I would have been offered better temptations. (laughs) But that's how we sometimes do it. We're just going to glorify going without something. And that doesn't work either, does it? So what's the right answer? Because if we try to stuff these things, then it leads to hypocrisy and judgmentalism. See, again, if we if we succeed for a while in suppressing these things, we become judgmental of others. And again, it leads to division and separation and then isolation. Start looking down on other people because they're not doing it right. And if we're not successful, well, then we lie about it. <laughs> we become hypocrites. We exaggerate our successes. We rationalize and justify our failures and we claim to do better than we are. And either way, it's not the right answer. So what is the Christian New Testament answer? What's the grace-based answer to coveting? And I believe the right answer is simply not to satisfy or silence these desires, but soothe them. Soothe them, what's that look like? there is a huge difference between delayed gratification versus denied gratification. See, I can live with delaying satisfaction, but I can't find a place to file it in my head. If I have no hope of ever getting satisfied, that's why, uh is anybody ever like growing up? you know, there was always that rich kid, right? Always that one family that had more money than the rest. And, uh, I went to college with some of these guys like that, and it was easy to become very envious of them because they could play it loose. They didn't have to worry as much about flunking out of school or what they were going to do for a job afterwards because they knew that their future was rock solid secure. They knew they had it made. Now, they didn't have any money. They were as broke as I was, because if they had good parents, their parents didn't spoil them. So they were poor going to school just like the rest of us. They didn't have any money to flaunt, but they just knew the future was secure, and they were fine with that. And it just enabled them to live freer and to just relax a lot more. And I thought, God, what would that even feel like? to know that you've got either you're going to inherit a family business or you have this huge inheritance. You don't have it yet, but it's guaranteed. God, how good would that feel? And you see, it reminds me of a story that Malcolm Smith told years ago, a really famous evangelist. And uh, Malcolm told this story one time of many years ago, there were two people traveling on a train and it was a long, boring train ride. So they get to chatting with each other and one of them was a minister and the other one was a lawyer. Not a typical lawyer joke, by the way. (laughs) But they're a minister and a lawyer. And so to be polite, the minister asked this lawyer, so what do you do for a living? And the guy looks at this guy and goes, I have the best job in the world, he says. I work for this huge law firm. And my particular job, he says, I work in a division where we handle a lot of wills and estates. And he says a lot of times people are put into wills and they inherit large amounts of money, but they don't know it. It's like distant relatives, sometimes relatives they didn't even know they had. So my job is to find these people, and bring him the good news that, hey, you didn't know it, you didn't realize it, but you're rich. And he says, for instance, I'm just on my way home from one of these calls where I've tracked down this uh, woman who has spent her life scrubbing floors. And that's where I found her. She was in this ratty place and she's on her hands and knees scrubbing these floors. And I said, you might not realize it, but you are a multimillionaire and to just see her her joy just the weight of the world instantly fall off her shoulders and he says you know the irony of that was she was already rich she just didn't know it and then so to be polite the lawyer asks the minister so what do you do for a living and the minister sits back and thinks for a minute and he says i have the exact same job <laughs> <laughs> If you are a Christian, you are rich, rich beyond measure. You have an inheritance that you can't even dream of. Your future is rock solid secure. Our job is to help you know you're already rich. You might not feel it. You might not have it all in your pocket, but the future is rock solid guaranteed, eternal security, security they can't take away. And the way that we find peace with this is like we teach a lot here at Hope. We have to, like the last passage here in our worship bulletin says, it says we have to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, we can look out this window and you know, this building we think is real, that tree outside we think is real, that road going by here is real. That's that's re- reality, right? Mm-mm, not really. If we were standing here a couple of hundred years ago, we wouldn't have a window. There might, There probably wasn't a tree there. There wasn't a road there. If we were here 200 years later, 200 years from now, that window probably won't be here, this building won't be here, that tree won't be there, that road might not be there. So what's real? See, heaven is real. Eternity is real. All this, this whole world, things are coming and going, passing away, but that is the true reality. We don't see it as real because we can't see it with our eyes. We can't touch it with our hands. But So we get to thinking this world is eternal. This world will always be here for us. This is real, and that's backwards. So we need to focus more on what's unseen. And then we need to focus more on differentiating like the Bible does, now versus then. See, the Bible says now we're going to have pain, we're going to have troubles, now we're going to have some suffering, now we're going to have some problems. But then, every tear will be wiped from our eyes, then we'll have perfect peace and ease, then we're going to be eternally happy. And you see, we can live with delayed gratification, can't we? And once we start to get it into our heads that that's secure, the other benefit of that is we start to see God and others as our solution, where we used to see him as our problem. And what that the fruit of that, it leads to connection and correction. See, once we start getting honest with ourselves, it enables us to start getting honest with others and them with us. And what that leads to is understanding and acceptance, and healing, and forgiveness, and trust in relationships. See, if our relationship is based on deception, where I have to fake it or act different than I am, then I believe you're doing the same to me, right? If I'm faking it, you're faking it. And we start to look at each other sideways, but if we can be honest with each other, if we can be open with each other and connect with one another, and connect with God and be honest with him and not pretend anymore, then we can start to really understand that these other people maybe aren't pretending with us either. And maybe God is being real. So once we understand this, the correction isn't just with our behaviors. It really starts with correct beliefs more than anything. If I could do one thing with my life, if I could do one thing as a Christian, if I had one superpower in the church, that superpower I would ask for is the ability to help people have an accurate conception of God. See, we all have a conception of God, right? But for most of us, it was really a misconception. A misconception but we didn't know it was a misconception. See, healing begins when we understand that maybe we're wrong about God. Maybe he's not exactly the way we were taught that he was, or that we believed that he was. Maybe he's a little more easygoing, a little more friendly, a little more understanding than we gave him credit for. And you see, that's the beginning of grace. That's the beginning of hope. And that's the beginning of healing. And that's why we teach what we teach here, is because when we can connect to the real God and not some misconception of Him, and we can correct our beliefs, then we can correct our behaviors as a byproduct. Thank you. And as we close this service, we just want to just wanna say, Lord... Thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy, your way of life. And thank you, Lord, for satisfying us by always providing for our needs and helping us to understand that good is ahead of us and that heaven is guaranteed to us and that you led us this far and you have the power and the ability to bring us all the way home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.